be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11. Emmy was printing programs or something and had some really nice thick paper in the printer, so I have frameable sermon notes this morning. I feel very honored to be preaching from such nice paper. Second <clears throat> Corinthians eleven, sixteen through thirty-three. If you remember in this letter, the, the, the tone of the letter has taken a turn. Paul is now addressing uh, the false teachers themselves, these false apostles. He He's referred to them as super apostles because such is their boasting to the church in Corinth. Um, what he is boasting in, in this particular part of the letter, isn't the, the wonder of his oratory or how wonderful he looks outwardly. Rather, he boasts in his suffering. Reminded me of Hudson Taylor, um, 1850s to 1900 or so. He was a missionary to China when no one was really in China. He founded China Inland Missions, and the result of his work there, his faithful work, 50 years of missionary service, is still felt today, exponentially felt today, in ways that we won't know until heaven. He wasn't an impressive-looking man necessarily, but he was impressive in prayer and in his faith. He faced sickness and loss, much as Paul did, uh, and yet he trusted his almighty God and Savior to carry him through the trials that he faced. Looking at Paul and those in the scriptures, he wrote, All God's giants have been weak men who only did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. This is Paul's comfort as well, that, that God is with them even in the midst of all of his trials. So I'll read uh, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 16. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Beginning in verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast, for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you, or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, 
in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Amen. Please be seated. Let us turn to the Lord once again in prayer. Father of lights, you are also the giver of wisdom, and you tell us in your word that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask of God, and you will give bountifully. We ask in Jesus' name that you would give your wisdom to we, your people, this morning. Encourage our souls and be glorified in the preaching of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So what's happening here in this really interesting part of this scripture, really it's interesting in light of all of Paul's writings. Rarely do we see him writing in this manner, even a little bit. What seems to be happening is he's putting on the veil of being like these false apostles, a boastful, arrogant man. He's, he's almost acting. He's pretending, like you used to do when you were a child. I'll pretend to be a cowboy. I'll pretend to be a nurse. I'll pretend to be a mommy. This time, Paul is pretending to be one of these false teachers and boasting the way they do. And really, what's the whole purpose of it? Why is he doing this? These false teachers had such a hold on the church, and they had convinced the church that they were uh, so wonderfully to be followed. And yet, when held up to the high standard of an apostle, Paul is showing the church that they really fall woefully short of any of the things that would mark an apostle. Namely, that they walked with Christ and followed Christ, but the mark of every apostle was also that they suffered like Christ. So Paul is boasting, he says in verse 16. He's boasting as a fool. They think he's a fool, so he's going to boast as a fool, he says. And he's already said that these these false teachers were servants of Satan. They're arrogant and showy. And he says, if you want to see boasting, I'll show you some boasting. I'll pretend to be like them for a moment. I'll show you how worthless this boasting really is. But really, the whole point of it is to contrast the boasting of these men who really have nothing to boast about. And Paul, in his life, devoted to the church. He wants them to see in a sense, what a real super apostle looks like. And it's my contention that Paul really was the super apostle. If they had comic books back then, they would put Paul in a comic book and make him a super apostle. He did it all by the power of Christ. So in verse 17, he says, What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would say, but as a fool. He's not saying that his words aren't inspired here. Again, he's, he's explaining to the church why he's about to do what he's doing. Many boast according to the flesh, so I too am going to act like a fool for you, for your account. 
In verse 19, he says again, again, to contrast the, the way that the false teachers had lifted them up, that they were bearing with fools. These false teachers, Paul is not only calling servants of Satan, but also calling them fools. And these are fools who had actually hurt the church in many ways. In verse 20, he says that they had made slaves of the church. They had devoured the church. They had taken advantage of the church. They had put on airs. They had struck them in the face. And yet, despite the way that they had been treated, the church actually embraced these, these super apostles in their great wisdom. Uh, the irony of these scriptures, of these particular verses, is poignant. They've made slaves of you. They've devoured you. They've taken advantage of you. They've even struck you and you still are drawn to them. This description of the false teachers is disturbing to read and it was disgusting to Paul. They pushed themselves forward in pride. They considered everyone else below them. Everyone else needed to to honor them and esteem them. And yet they desired to control the people. Through fear and intimidation, it seems, arguments, power politics, accusations of Paul, anyone who would threaten their dominance. And they also seem to have exploited the church financially, we see in this letter. This leaves Paul disgusted. That's what brought Paul to this point of this boasting. And Paul says, "I, I was too weak for that. If this is what you like, if that's strength, then yes. In verse 21, he says, To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. We did none of that. He actually came in humility and the fruit of the Spirit and the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He didn't manipulate or control anyone. He didn't exploit anyone. He didn't manhandle them as these tyrants had done. So Paul says he was weak by comparison. Let's look at some of the things that Paul says in verse 20 as he describes these false apostles because I believe it shows something about leadership in the church and really as Christians how we ought to live. He says in verse 20 that they made slaves of you. Paul had done the opposite. Rather than making a slave of the church and dominating them like a master. True shepherds are slaves for their church. Paul was a slave for the church in Corinth. Indeed, your elders are called to be slaves for the flock, to lay down their lives for the flock. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that he had made himself a slave to everyone. Why? In order to win people to Christ. This language is used throughout the Scriptures, describing how the shepherds of your flock how the the pastors and elders of churches around the world should act. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says, We're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. In the Greek, the word Lord is always attached to master in your mind. It should be attached to Lord and master. You should think of slavery when you see the word Lord. 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy that the Lord's slave must not quarrel, but be gentle to everyone. 
be able to teach, patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. You act that way because you're the Lord's slave. Of course, we're just following the pattern of our Savior in Philippians chapter 2. We hear Jesus described in this way. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. These false teachers were anything but slaves to the church. They were the opposite. And Paul says, look at this. When we came, we were slaves for this body. We were slaves for the flock. Secondly, he says that the false teachers devoured the church. In other words, they used the church to further their own interests, to enrich themselves, using the resources of the church to to really build themselves up. And the true shepherd does the opposite. The true shepherd builds up the church at his own loss, which is what Paul did. In 2 Corinthians 12.15, later in this letter, Paul says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. This is Paul's attitude about service in the church. It's not about enriching yourself. It's rather about being spent for the souls of those you serve. Well, certainly we need to step back a minute, too, and think about this from a Christian perspective. This isn't just talking about your pastor and your elders. This is the way Christians live. Elders are simply Christians. Christians whom God has called to serve you in a special way. Just as deacons are called to serve you in a special way. But ultimately, they're just Christian people. We're all called to be slaves for each other. We're all called to spend and be spent for the gospel. We're all called to build up the other person, to place everyone above us in our own minds, their own needs, their own necessities for others. Thirdly, it says that these, these false teachers took advantage of you. Literally in the Greek, they, they took you. They're taking you. Well, the true shepherds put the flock before themselves. Obviously, they, they live their lives in service to the flock as examples for Christ, not domineering over those in their charge, 1 Peter 5.1, but being examples to the flock shepherding the flock that is among you diligently, putting the flock ahead of themselves. The false teachers were the opposite, of course. Fourthly, in verse 20, he says that these false teachers, these super apostles, pushed themselves forward or gave themselves airs. In other words, they're prideful, arrogant, boastful people diligent to guard their own reputations and, and criticize those who would, who would maybe rise up against them. Paul, in this case. Guarding their rightness in doctrine or rightness in their Jewishness or rightness in whatever they say, diligently guarding their reputations. Paul said, I didn't do that. The true shepherd of the flock is humble and meek and gentle. These are, again, simply traits of a Christian, anti-pride, 
Every Christian is anti-pride because of what the Holy Spirit has done. Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Philippians 2, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Colossians 3, put on compassionate hearts with kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, Paul's apostleship was very different from what the Corinthian church was seeing in these false apostles. These were boastful, prideful men, insisting on their own rights and their own rightness in all cases. And Paul called the church and really lived by this himself a life of humility, gentleness, kindness, and meekness. Why? This is how Christ lived. This is what Christ exampled for the church. In John 13, this is after Jesus had washed the feet of his apostles before he went to to be crucified. He said, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Again, Lord, Master. He says, You are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. We're to lay our lives down in service for the flock and for each other. The fifth thing he mentions is that these people strike you in the face. In the Greek, they slap your face. This was the worst indignity, to be slapped publicly in the face. True shepherd of the flock, of course, would do anything to protect the flock from being slapped. Physically protecting the flock is where spiritually protecting the flock. This is what Paul would do. He endured all kinds of suffering to protect those under his care. Charles Hodge wrote, The rule of false teachers has always been the rule of tyrants. You need only to look at any one of the sects or cults that have risen up out of the true Christian faith to see at the head a tyrant. Look at the beginnings of the Mormon church, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Whatever else you might say about these people, they ruled with an iron fist. These were tyrants. And yet our Lord, He does everything to protect the flock. And He's a slave for His own people. In John 10, He said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's only a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. A real shepherd will protect his flock. Paul goes on to show that everything he's said about these super apostles, the things that he's mentioned already, 
really serve only to highlight the fact that these are not apostles at all. And his foolish boasting, this boasting he's about to do, is going to devastate any argument that the false apostles might have. They would never suffer anything for the flock, these men, who had lifted themselves up. They only used the church for their own glory, their own riches. So in verse 21, he begins to boast. He begins to speak like a fool, he says. He says, I also dare to boast like them. Are they Hebrews? Are they Israelites? Are they offspring of Abraham? He goes on and on and on boasting. There's this uh, phenomenon that occurs in our country. It actually occurs all over the world where people who have never served in the military will just go and buy a uniform and put it on and put a bunch of medals on and then show up at veterans events so that they can participate in the honor that the veterans have received and whatever. Um, It's actually, I mean, it's repugnant, as you can imagine. It's called Stolen Valor. If you want to be in kind of just some entertainment, look up Stolen Valor on YouTube. Tons and tons. Uh, That's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's saying, there's a little bit of Stolen Valor going on. You have no idea what it means to be an apostle. And the people that you'll see on the internet, the Stolen Valor, they're often approached by real veterans. And within just 30 seconds, you can tell that this isn't a real service person at all. Because what happens? Well, you start asking questions. Because when you meet someone else who's been in the service, especially if it's your own service, you want to know, oh, where, where did you go to training? Where have you been deployed? Oh, you were there. I was there too. Who did you serve under? Who was your boss at this time? Where did you go to pilot training? Etc., etc., etc. And with a few minutes, because you've actually lived that life, you can discern this person's lying. He's just a liar. Unfortunately, for these people who do this stolen valor thing, they often claim to be the most amazing people Medal of Honor, Navy SEAL, combat fighter pilot, whatever. They claim that that's them, and of course, those people are attracted to each other and they walk up and start talking to the real deal and, oh yeah, it was so super secret that you would never know what I did because it's top, top secret. And already you know they've been destroyed. This is what Paul is doing with these super apostles. He's showing that what they've done is actually nothing close to an apostle because all apostles were called to suffer for the Lord as Christ suffered. He starts really by showing us that these people are probably Judaizers. And these are the Judaizers who Paul probably struggled with at every single church that he started. These are Jews who um, claimed the Messiah, but also claimed that you must also follow the Jewish law as as part of your Christian faith. This was settled by the apostles in Acts chapter 15. They brought it to the Jerusalem council and they said, do they really have to follow the Jewish law? And the apostles said, no, they don't. Not the ceremonial law anyway. The moral law is always applicable for the Christian. But the ceremonial law, the laws of circumcision, the laws of Passover, the laws of the, the, the feast days and etc., etc., what you can and cannot eat. These things had passed with Christ. But these super Jews, these super apostles, 
had been vaunting themselves, and Paul is basically just showing that he's also a Hebrew. He's an Israelite. He's an offspring of Abraham, just as they are. In Philippians 3, he goes on to say, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, they aren't going to be able to out-Hebrew Paul. He studied, we know, under Gamaliel, who was kind of the Jewish teacher of the law in Israel at the time. And we think he had something like the equivalent of three PhDs in Hebrew and in the law. He would be like a scientist who, who was trained by Einstein or pilot who was trained by Chuck Yeager or something like that. Paul was more Jewish than anyone around. He was highly respected for his learning before God saved him. How much more so now? In verse 23, he goes on to list, really 23 through the end of this chapter, all of the ways that he had suffered for Christ and the kingdom. And again, these are the marks of an apostle. One of the marks of an apostle is just intense suffering. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says. Far greater labors. Far more imprisonments. Countless beatings, often near death. Much of the things that Paul lists in this list aren't even in the book of Acts. Not all of them. So we learn much about Paul and his suffering. Often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. The Jews were not allowed to lash more than 40 times. So they would go one less than 40 to make sure they didn't go over 40 because they were so righteous in their punishment. So five times at the hand of the Jews, he was lashed. If you've ever had a spanking as a child, you remember if it was one that hurt, it hurt. That's nothing compared to a lashing on your back. Forty lashes. Less one. He was beaten with rods three times. Just being in a mob of people who have sticks. Sometimes you see these, these protests on the street where... Uh, the, the police come and maybe a European police come with the shields and the sticks and they just surround one or two people who are protesting and beat them. And then the person gets up and runs away maybe. Paul was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned once. This is taking stones, not your little pebbles, stones, big stones that you can hold, bowling ball sized stones if you can do it, And throwing them at someone until they die, he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day he was adrift at sea. Being adrift at sea is terrifying. If you've ever been on the water by yourself, even on a boat, overnight, terrifying. We were put out to sea... um, 
for survival training in a one-man life raft, a raft about as big as this pulpit. And I was sitting there, and the sun was starting to go down, and they, they spread you out about three miles apart so that you don't see anybody. And as the sun started to go down and the water slapping up against the side of my raft, I started to feel things and hear things and look around and thought I saw a fin coming up out of the water. You begin to go crazy. He was a night and a day adrift at sea, probably holding on to something. On frequent journeys, his whole life after being saved was a journey walking all over Europe walking thousands of miles in danger from rivers in danger from robbers danger from my own people sounds like David in a way running from his own people danger from the Gentiles that's everyone who's not his people in other words everyone's after me danger in the city danger in the wilderness danger at sea Danger from false brothers. Toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst without food in cold exposure. Verse 32, he says that the king of Damascus was looking for him to kill him and he had to be let down through a basket. And besides all this, he says he has great anxiety for all the churches. Again, that's another distinction from the false apostles who probably had no anxiety for the church at all. Your elders all have anxiety for your spiritual well-being, indeed everything about you. Paul had truly suffered as an apostle. And all true apostles suffered like Christ. Why though? Why? Well, he's already told us in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. That's why, because he wanted Christ to be manifested in his body and he was willing to endure anything so that he might be a vessel that produces the gospel in a way that it would be received. He says, we who live are always being given given over to death for Jesus' sake. So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is why Paul suffered as he did. It was for the church. For it is all for your sake, he says, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. It's all to the glory of God. So he says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The things that are, uns- that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul endures all of this for the glory of God. He endures all of this suffering, the suffering of Christ, 
for the church. All of the apostles we know from extra-biblical sources, Josephus and Origen and others, were probably murdered as well. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew, who went to Asia and the present Russia, if you will, was also probably crucified. Thomas, who ministered in India, died by spears. Philip went to North Africa. He died by the sword. Matthew, we think, went to Persia and Ethiopia, was stabbed to death by knives. Bartholomew, also in Persia. Not exactly sure how he died, but he died a martyr's death. James was in Syria. He was stabbed, clubbed to death. Simon in Persia was killed another way. Matthias, remember the one who was supposed to replace Judas, went to Syria to be burned. And John, although we don't think died at the hands of his enemies, was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. To be an apostle of Jesus Christ meant suffering. And Paul says, I've suffered. I've suffered. But it's not just apostles that are called to suffer. We all will suffer for Christ. You are also called to be ministers. You're you're being equipped for the ministry, Paul says. This is the job of the teaching ministry of the church is to glorify God and to equip you for ministry. So you also should expect suffering. In Romans 8, Paul writes that if you are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, you will suffer with him. Such is our union with Christ. We expect suffering as a Christian. It's the mark of a Christian. One of the marks is that Satan and the world hate us. They oppose us. And it's just a reality that we should expect some suffering. And yet our attitude should be like Paul. In my weakness, he is strong. This light and momentary affliction is preparing an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We need to put these things in our minds so that when the suffering happens, we can have a proper perspective and give glory to God. The watching world is watching how you react to your suffering. Are you giving glory to God? Are you, you in, a, in a sense, being joyful in your sufferings? Not joyful that you are suffering, of course, but joyful that you know the God who rules all things and you know His love for you and you know that all things are in His hands so you can, in a sense, be joyful. Colossians 1, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Not that Christ's... uh, Afflictions were lacking in any way, but that the church would see more of apostleship from Paul, more of his, of his suffering and rejoice. We all share abundantly in Christ's sufferings that we might share abundantly in comfort as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, and remember Bonhoeffer was a man who uh, chose during World War II, just as it was starting up. He's from Germany. He was in the United States when the war was 
really heating up and persecution was beginning. And he chose to go back to Germany, to go back and suffer with his people, to suffer with German Christians under uh, the authoritarian rule of the Nazis. And he went back and eventually was killed. He was killed by Hitler. Well, Bonhoeffer wrote that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Physical death, is that what he's talking about? Well, yes, maybe. Maybe God would call you to physically die. But it's more difficult to die daily to yourself. To die daily to the, to the world, the flesh, and the devil. To live for Christ every day. Jesus said in Luke 9.23 that if anyone would come after me, if anyone's going to be a Christian, if anyone's going to be a Christ follower, he will deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is what we are called to do. In Romans 12.1 and 2, Paul uses similar death language to describe our daily lives. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, if you are to live on this earth as a follower of Christ, you need to be dying daily to all of the lusts of your flesh, the lust of your eyes, and the pride of life. You need to be striving to follow hard after Jesus Christ. You don't need to seek out suffering. Suffering will seek out you. I'm sure Paul would have, would have rather not gone through any of those things. And yet this was God's plan for his own glory and for Paul's good and for the good of the church. So as Paul's boasting and our boasting, all of it really shows our own weakness and it glorifies our Savior. It fixes our eyes where they should be, and that is on Jesus Christ. He says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. The false apostles were liars. Paul says, Jesus Christ, my focus, he knows I'm not lying. This is kind of an oath he's taking at the end of all this. In other words, everything that I've said is perfectly true, and Jesus knows it. And I don't think the false apostles could make the same claim. Paul suffered greatly for the church. He was just following in the steps of his Savior. And we are also called to do the same. To live courageous lives. To be diligent in our daily walk with God. Say, well, we're willing to die for Jesus right now. Okay. Are you willing to... Get up early in the morning and read your Bibles? Are you willing to spend 30 minutes a day just in prayer? To devote some time in your day to prayer and uh, the disciplines of, of the Scriptures? These things are important because they're, they're a pursuit of God in relationship. They don't win you any points for your salvation or anything like that. But to have a relationship means you're in pursuit of the relationship. And this is what we're called to do to pursue our Lord every day. Much harder than just dying. I think if any one of us were given an opportunity, 
You can either die and profess Christ, or you can live and deny Christ. Most of us would probably say, okay, well, I'm going to die. I don't like this, but I'm going to die. We're called to die every day. To die every day. Sometimes the hardest thing that we're called to do is to live for Christ. To discipline your schedule. So that you make time for what's the most important in life. But be warned, if you do this, Satan will not like it. He will come after you and you'll find yourself in the suffering that we've read about. And this is a good thing. Because in the weakness that God brings upon your life, you will be strong in the Spirit. I'll close just by looking at Romans chapter 8. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans 8 with me? Here again, Paul, because of his... His great suffering, he always addressed suffering, and he knew that Christians would all suffer. In verse 18, he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. We endure suffering because we know there's something great waiting for us in heaven. Our Lord and Savior is there waiting for us, and he's prepared a wonderful inheritance for us. And not one ounce of suffering will be without its reward. If you skip forward to verse 31, Paul says, What shall we say to these things? Speaking of our salvation, our election, our predestination, our calling, our justification, eventual glorification. In other words, all of our salvation. Paul says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now imagine all that Paul has suffered. We just read about all that he suffered. These words come from an experience, a depth of experience that we will not understand. And Paul's takeaway is, if God is for us, nothing else matters. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Does that mean that Paul won't suffer anymore? That he won't be shipwrecked or beaten or lashed? No. But what it means is that his God is with him and will abundantly bless him in all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Satan accuses you every day, and yet God has justified you. No one can bring a charge against you. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is indeed interceding for us. There's no condemnation that can separate you from the love of Christ, is what he's saying. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul had experienced all of these things, and he knew that None of them would separate us from the love of Christ. And yet this is all of our lots as Christ followers. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things, in all of our sufferings, in all of our our difficulties in this wilderness journey, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we think of our lives, especially in the difficult times of life, we need to focus our eyes on Christ Jesus our Lord. He suffered much more than you ever will. Indeed, Paul suffered much more than you ever will. And he focused his eyes on Christ. We magnify the love of God in Christ Jesus in our suffering. And indeed, all of our lives are just lifting up Jesus Christ. That's my job in preaching is to exalt Jesus Christ, to show you Christ and all of his goodness, all of his suffering, and all of his love. I would ask each one of you that as you go forward this week, you would recommit yourself to living every day for Christ. Come what may, come suffering, come persecution, small or big, hidden or secret or public, that you would commit yourself to following Jesus Christ and focus your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. He is with you. He will comfort you as he comforted Paul. There's no one who can bring a charge against you, no one to condemn you, no one can separate you from the love of Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for lifting up the sufferings of Christ as seen in the life of Paul. For lifting him up before our eyes so that we might be encouraged. Lord, as he fixed his eyes on Jesus Christ, may we do the same. As he suffered mightily for the sake of the church and the gospel, may we do the same. As he laid down his life for his brothers and sisters in the church, serving them as a slave, may we do the same. We pray that for the joy set before us, that awaits us when we're with you forever and ever, that we would endure anything on this earth. And more than enduring hardship, Lord, that we would pursue you. We would pursue you diligently every day. Lord, that you would renew our desire for the word, for the daily scooping up of the manna of life, the word of God. And may each one of us eat to our fill every day. May we be diligent in our prayers. May we be diligent in good works every day for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name.